If you have a Bible, I would invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of James chapter 3. If you have an app, now's the time to open it. James chapter 3, we're going to begin reading at the 13th verse. I'm doing a little bit of gymnastics here. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, I'm going to repeat that. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will be also disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Continuing in chapter 4, verse 1. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Jumping down to verse 7 in the same chapter, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, if you'll turn with me all the way to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to read the first seven verses of Genesis 4. Familiar story to, I think, everyone in the room. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and born, bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Let's pray together. Father, today we are grateful for your love, for your constant presence in our lives. I ask in these next few moments that your words would come through clearly. They would grab our hearts. They would convict us. They would challenge us. They would comfort us and call us, all depending on our station in life into a place of greater intimacy and closeness with you. This is impossible in our own strength, and so we ask for your grace through Christ our Lord. And everybody said, amen.
The gospel reading this morning is a very um, well-known passage. It's a theme that comes throughout Jesus' teaching about the least being the greatest. And it's a rather polite telling of the story. Um, It covers up uh, with some of typical Markan vagary what's going on. If you go over to Matthew 20, you'll note that there's a more explicit telling of what most scholars would say is the same story. And uh, brothers James and John uh, fighting and fussing amongst themselves. And so mom comes, according to Matthew, to Jesus and says, can we make an arrangement here? Like a good mom, she's trying to get her boys to shut up. And she thought, well, let me take care of this. You guys aren't fixing it. And she asks Jesus that one be seated on his right and his left. And This story of contrasting brothers, I think, ties in well to our first set of brothers in the Bible, Cain and Abel, and I think it also ties in well to Jesus' decision to bring a child into his conversation here in Mark chapter 9. So I want to talk to you about the cure for ambition, the cure for ambition. If all is grace... That phrase that we hear so many times, all is grace. If everything is grace, that means everything is received because by definition, grace is a gift. So if all is grace, everything is received. Who in the room likes gifts? Wave your hand at me. God is watching. If you have a birthday or Christmas coming, I'm waiting. I see some really grumpy, cynical, cool. Okay, great. We all like gifts, and we all know that gifts come in different shapes, sizes. Some things say that great gifts come in what kind of packages? Small packages. And all the ladies said, amen. Guys don't tend to agree with that. We like big packages with chainsaws and firearms and quads and things like that in the box. Can't put it in a small box. Now, here's the thing about gifts, right? If you're giving me a pair of socks, just get creative and do whatever you want to do. I don't really care what socks you get me, you know? You don't know what socks I'm wearing today. I could have Mickey Mouse socks, and the only person to be happy would be Shelby. I don't, you don't know, right? But the more money that's being spent and the more significant the gift is, everybody's looking at my feet right now trying to figure out what is going on. Let me give you a a clue. My socks match my boots, my jeans, and my shirt. Um, anyway, (laughs) just telling you too much about myself. You know, if you're giving me something that's relatively inconsistent, one year, my grandparents were notorious for inconsistent gift giving. Um, I, I got a pair of suede gloves, and in each one of the fingers, my grandfather had put a $10 bill. Come on, that's a cool gift. And when you're like 12, that's the best gift. Here's the problem with that gift. It starts to set some expectations. So next year when I opened it up and there were big fat suspenders that were red and they said ufda, which for Norwegians is kind of like oy vey, and there was a can of fart spray, I was let down because I don't think those were $100 suspenders. The point being, you know, if you're buying something that's relatively insignificant, fine, you know, just you express yourself and what you think I should have. If you're going to spend more money on me, let's talk. You know, if you're going to spend a lot of money, let's say, on a very nice wristwatch, I have opinions. I have a lot of opinions. 
And I'd like to put them out. I think the Amazon wish list is the best thing ever. Because it's like, you know what, if you're going to spend like more than 50 bucks, you should be informed. You really should be informed. If you're going to like, you know, again, if you bought me a car, not that I'm not asking for anything. I'm just putting these things out there. If you bought me a car and you're going to spend a lot, I would want it like, there are certain cars that I would not want you to buy for me. Has anybody tried, am I the only weird person in the room? Like if somebody spent $10,000 on a watch and it looked like a rapper should be wearing it, would you be bothered by this? Like, help me pay off my mortgage or something. I didn't want that gift. You know what I'm, any, okay, I'm just seeing if there's resonance in the room this morning. I think what happens is when it comes to the more significant the gift is, the more say we want to have in the gift. Like, I would never go out and buy my wife something that was very expensive without talking to her first. Because I've been married for 23 years, and I want to be married for 24. Right? Date your mate, in a nutshell, right there. Okay. But there's something about the significance of the gift that kind of starts to eke in. I want to have a little say. I want to have a little control. How about the fact that my daughter's first day at a local high school, a student who was not even a senior drove his dad's McLaren P1 to school for the first day of class. Now, for a lot of people, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. That car is somewhere about a million and a half dollars for one car. And that's Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller, that's like way over the edge right there. And have you ever seen a person driving a car like that and you say, they don't understand what they're driving. They don't appreciate it. Hello? They didn't work for it. Y'all going to make me feel like an idiot this morning. I'll preach the sermon to me and Brother Bernie. You ever see it? Like, you can't appreciate. There's no way that you're 16 that you can appreciate this car. Come on, right? You see, but it, it, there's something, there's a connection here between working for something, earning something, and the significance of a thing. Like a lot of people, there's a little bit of self-pride, and I'm not even saying that in a bad sense, where if, if I succeed in life, I want it to be the product of my efforts. I don't want it to be because somebody handed it to me. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want a handout. I want to apply myself and do the due diligence and, and go through the hardship, if that's what it takes, in order to have this significance in my life. Like, there's a difference between an, a PhD that you earned and an honorary degree. Hello? Some of our preachers need to learn. Any, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that out loud. I'm feeling feisty this morning. I apologize. That was, I've done so good. I've been here a year and I don't talk that way. Okay. <sighs> On some level, I think these ideas of significance, significant accomplishments, significant possessions, significant state in life, it's something that we all wrestle with from time to time. At least most of us, I think, certainly we see the disciples wrestling for this sort of significance, being the greatest. We see Cain and Abel in the original story of these brothers fighting for significance, Abel seems to find it. It eludes Cain. There's this sense that if, if there's something significant, it's the product of significant skill or significant effort. And that says something about who I am as a person. 
It's reverse engineering, and it's a little bit simplistic, but I think we can all relate on some level, is that aside from somebody who wins a lottery or somebody who's a trust fund baby, if you see somebody living in a certain neighborhood driving a certain car, if you see somebody has a certain corner office, you assume that somehow they did significant things to get to that place, and they must have a significant gift or skill for time management or study or retention or people skills that somehow these people have done something significant because they are significant. But ambition can get away from us in this quest for significance. You see, I want to be really clear this morning. I'm not talking about excellence. This is not the cure for excellence. This is not the cure for trying hard and being diligent. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the cure for ambition. You see, the desire for excellence is a grace. It's a gift that God has given all of humanity on some level, and that is to do the best you can do with what God has put before you. If you've got one talent, you don't bury it in the ground. You do something with it. If you've got two, you don't bury it in the ground. You do something with it. And excellence is not based on how much you have. It's based on what you do with what you do have. That's a good thing. Desire for significance is a little bit more complicated than excellence because significance speaks in this murky uh, way that can be a little bit carnal sometimes because it's ambitious. Significance that is ambitious, it takes a lot of energy to maintain. We're going to do bookend quotes this morning from our brother Jack, C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. He says, ambition. We must be careful what we mean by it. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, I think that's what the disciples are getting at in the gospel text, which is what I think it does mean, then it is bad. If it simply means wanting to do a thing well, then it is good. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted, but the wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. And this is what we see consistently throughout Scripture, and I think we've all experienced it in life, is that when our desire for excellence becomes a desire for significance. We've entered into this world of carnal ambition. And friends, please hear this, and this is where it's relevant, I think, for us moving forward into this week and beyond, and that is ambition is the source of so much relational strife, whether we name it or not, because it gives us illusions of superiority over others, and it gives us Illusions of inferiority because all of life is comparison. Our significance is measured as we compare ourselves to other people. And our broken, sinful society can only offer salvation in having our name in bigger type, as C.S. Lewis would say. Our society, the very systems in which we operate, they're not necessarily evil. I'm not here to say that capitalism is evil or that it's good. I am here to say that on some level, if we come to that system with a bad heart, it can exasperate the problems that are there because we're constantly measuring ourselves by our, ourselves and comparing ourselves to one another based on what we have, what we've done. And if we find a bunch of people who've done less than us, somehow we're saved from our own insignificance. 
It's dead quiet in here. I apologize if I brought this sermon to the wrong church today. I've got to keep going. I'm sorry. I think there's a temptation in all of us to find our significance in being better than the person next to us, in being the greatest in the kingdom. There's a temptation for us to try and get the best seats, the best titles, the best name for ourselves. And this is wisdom from below, as James describes it. It's selfish ambition. It's devilish. But in God, who is Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we see freedom from this sort of comparison. We see society. God is social by definition. His name is Trinity. As a Father, Son, and the Spirit, we don't see competition. We don't see submission. We don't see hierarchy. We see freedom and perfect relational existence. This is what Jesus is getting at when he rejects the call to be the greatest or to be greater because you know somebody. To be greater because you've done something better. God is not just moral perfection. He is relational perfection because God is not ambitious. God is not ambitious because God doesn't need anything. God is not ambitious because God will not be compared to anything. Because God is not a thing. God is not of the creational order. Everything is in God. And so he is free from the comparison. Free from the need to be more spiritual, more financially secure, more happily married, having a better family, having a better personal life, having a better sense of humor, having a more interesting life, being a better dresser, and so on and so forth. What you'll find, if you haven't noticed this by now, is that church does not fix relational dysfunction. I don't know if you know this or not. Going to church does not cure us of our insecurities. Going to church does not free us from our compulsions to compare ourselves to one another. I'm waiting for amens from all across the room, heartily said, from life experience, church doesn't fix this. Sometimes it's putting gas on it if you will. Hello. If we've been comparing ourselves all week long to the completely fictional reality shows on our television, I'm going to let that one sit out there for a minute. The completely fictional reality shows on our television. If we've been watching this nonsense and consuming it all week, and then going to work and going into social situations, constantly sizing ourselves and other people up. And then we walk into church where we are conditioned to put our best foot forward. Amen? Come on, that's, I like it. That's what we say, folks. How you doing? Blessed and highly favored, brother. <laughs> Liar. Liar. People walk into church, it is more lying in church 
than any other. I mean, Martin Luther King rightfully said that 10 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. It is also the most dishonest hour in America. Because we walk in and lie with the most beautiful anointed smile on our face. Honey, you look beautiful today. Y'all don't like my jokes. It's all right. But you know it's true. You know it's true. Oh, what an adorable baby. (sighs) I wish we had kids just like your kids. You know, it's lies. Just patented lies. Because we have to. God forbid somebody knew you were going through a a trial. And here's, please understand, I'm going to say this for the record, I don't even look at the cameras ever, I'm looking at cameras and people, whoever will listen to me, I'm not telling anybody to go out and tell the world you're junk, okay? But your options are not lying with a fake smile or just kind of doing a Maury Povich expose on your life. Those are not your options. Have you heard this one? You know what, I'm going through a hard time, I'd really appreciate your prayers, Drop the mic and walk out of the building. You were honest and discreet at the same time. (gasps) I love this. If If you can get back into Mark 9 where our gospel text is. I just imagine Jesus has a big minivan. And all the disciples are in the back of a big minivan. And there's like cups and goldfish on the floor and like, like somebody, probably Peter's in a booster seat. And I love this 33rd verse. It's like they're pulling up to the house and Jesus says, what have you guys been arguing about back there? What were you arguing about on the way? Look at this, verse 34. They were silent. This could just pass us by, but here's what I want to draw your attention to. In the Greek, this is the same exact description Mark gives to the Pharisees when Jesus confronts them. If you look at Mark chapter 3 in the fourth verse later in your own time, you'll notice that Jesus confronts the Pharisees and asks them a question along the same lines, very confrontational, and in the Greek it's identical. Silence. Whether it's his enemies and his opposition or it's the people closest to him, he's now having to deal with all of them the same way. Because all of them are missing the point. Whether it's Pharisees nitpicking, straining at gnats, pointing out splinters in other people's eyes with huge beams in their own eyes, or it's disciples. After all of the time with Jesus, after all of the time in church, they're still fussing over who's going to be more significant than the others. This is the thing that bothered me the most about the whole text. They'd been with Jesus for three years, and they're still doing this. And it made me think, I haven't physically been in the presence of Jesus, but I've been in church for 45 years. And church alone doesn't fix it. If three years eating and sleeping and walking with Jesus results in this, what hope does church offer? Is that a fair question? That's the thing that bothered me. These are people who saw Jesus open blind eyes, raise the dead. And they're like, 
but can I get a good seat? Mom, would you please see if you can get an in for us? This is how deep-seated our ambitions are in us. This is why it's not, we can't blame capitalism. We can't blame America. This is first century Israel. And they're jockeying for superiority. They're comparing themselves. And friends, that's why we read Genesis. It goes back to the beginning. You see, we're transformed. This is what Jesus says. And this is a simple point of the sermon. We're transformed by the combination of presence and practice, not one on its own. In other words, being in the presence of Jesus alone was not enough to fix their heart. It's not enough to be people of presence. We have to be people who also practice. Because what does he say to them? He calls them together and says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all. How do we do it? I think that's what he's getting at. Last of all and servant of all. In other words, your quest for greatness is a problem that can only be cured when you're willing to and actually serve whosoever will. In other words, you'll always be restless, you'll always be striving, you'll never be satisfied. It's always going to be a high-maintenance life, trying to keep up with the Joneses or keep one step ahead of everybody else in the quest for significance. You only get a cure when you start serving other people. You only get cured when your eyes are so off of yourself and onto the good of the other that you're actually Friends, you're stepping into the life of God. Thomas Akempis wrote a book in the 14th century called The Imitation of Christ. If you haven't read this book, I will heartily endorse this book as one of the most important books I've ever read in my life. The Imitation of Christ. I feel like if it's endured for 700 years, there's something there. Just saying. He says, Jesus has now many lovers of the heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. Can we use other language and say, there are people who love theology, there are people who love praise and worship, there are people who love the liturgy, there are people who love the sense of community and family that the church has to offer, but there are very few people who want to be inconvenienced. There are very few people who will commit themselves to their own hurt. There are very few people who look at the cross and say, that's for me. The thing is, it's that cross that cures us. It is that cross of service and self-denial that cures the ambition that's been lurking in the hearts of men and women for generations. Church won't fix it. Walking with Jesus, quote unquote, won't fix it. I know that sounds offensive, but we see it right here. It didn't fix it for them. See, Jesus isn't repudiating greatness. He's redefining it. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to be great. He's saying what you think is great is not great at all. There's a different kind of greatness. It's because it's Godness. 
He's challenging them to be great at the things that matter to God. (laughs) Think about this. We spend all of our time trying to be better, and God is calling us to be great. We're trying to be better than we were last week, better than our parents, better than our friend who stabbed us in the back, and now we're going to show them in another church, if they're watching, those sorts of situations. And God's saying, I don't want you to be better than your mom. I don't want you to be better than your dad. I want you to be great at the things that matter to me. That's what I want you to be great at. See, this is about your why. This is about why you get up in the morning and do what you do. This small story in the Gospels is not about increasing volunteerism in the local church. And everybody said, Whoosh. there's no sign-ups after church for the sermon, okay, after the sermon. That's not what this is about. No. This is about why do we do what we do in the first place? Because we, we can serve for all the wrong reasons. Volunteerism is all over the world. It's not just in the church. You can join the Peace Corps for all I care. Volunteer away. That's not this. You can be self-serving while you're serving. <laughs> Why? Why do we get up and sign up and follow through? This is what it's getting at. Why do you ask God for things? You notice in the James text, he says, you ask and you don't receive because you're asking for the wrong reason. He doesn't say you're asking for the wrong stuff. He doesn't say you're asking God for things and you're, if you would ask him for the right things, he'd give them to you. But because you ask for the stupid things, God won't give. That's not what he says. He says you're asking, but your intention's in the wrong spot. I don't want to be a part of a church who serves because they feel better about themselves because they served. I don't want to be a part of a church who's serving to impress unbelieving people. Look how good we are. That's not what Jesus is calling them to. If that was what Jesus was calling them to, it would just be a deeper, harder to deal with issue than they already had. You see, this morning we're not concerned about activity. We're concerned about being a kind of people. Please hear me. I've been reckless this entire sermon, so I'm not going to stop now, I guess. We've spent a lot of time in church teaching people to tithe, but not how to buy a round of drinks. I'm sorry, of coffee at the coffee shop, wherever you go. You hear what I'm saying? We're, we are a people who give to missions and give, and we tithe faithfully, Lord willing, all of us in the room. Thank you. That was my wife, so that doesn't count. I'm sorry. I realize I, the voice clicked a little bit later. Um, we're, we're, we might be tithers, but we're stingy when we walk out of the church house. So what good was your tithe? Because your heart's in the same place. 
What would happen if you were the guy or you were the gal that when everybody was out at Nordagio's, because that's where Christian people go, you were buying all the coffee, not beer, all the coffee. You see what I'm saying about the kind of person? I was with a person who was making well into six figures who we went out to lunch and somebody was a couple bucks short and he looked at him and said, well, you're $2 short. You can get me with that later. I'm not lying with the $2. It was literally $2. I don't mean that as a cliche. That's ugly. I'm sorry. I don't want to be preachy or moralistic, but that's ugly. You know what's beautiful is when you're in a room and just for the joy of blessing other people, you're like, I got it. Don't worry about it. That's beautiful. What kind of people are we? And this is why Jesus brings a child into the center of this conversation. Because children don't, at their best, children don't have agendas. Children do things for face value joy, or they don't do things for face value pain. There aren't second and third level manipulations going on until they get to about third grade. See, Jesus is inviting us to be this kind of person, the person who is cured from ambition by not only being in his presence, but by doing what he does. You see, the call to serve is the call to draw near to God. Did you notice that's where the James text ends this morning? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, serving is drawing near to God because God is in the face of the people who need your service. He's in the face of the poor. He's in the face of the marginalized. He's in the face of the oppressed. That's where God's face is. And when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So Jesus is not calling people to serve because he's got a long to-do list. He's calling us to serve so you can get closer to him. The call to serve is the call to draw near to the God who is already serving those people. Jesus is with the lepers. Jesus is with the prostitutes. Jesus is with the tax collectors. So when you're going to serve the people who need the serving, Jesus is with the children. And Shelby and Lily said, Jesus is in those places. And so when you go to those places, guess who you get close to? Jesus. The invitation to serve is not to increase performance, it's to change your proximity. The call to serve is the call to be healed from the ambition that has plagued all of us in different ways since Cain and Abel. Serving cures us. It heals us. And so we close with C.S. Lewis, our other bookend. The being cured with all of the pain has pleasure too. Have you ever found that serving is painful? I'm going to wait for somebody to say yes. Inconvenient? Annoying? Easy to walk away from? With all of that, it has pleasure too. One creeps home. Anybody get home tired sometimes? Tired and bruised, if you work in kids' ministry, 
Look, but look at this. Into a state of mind that is really restful. When all one's ambitions have been given up, then one can for the first time say, Thy kingdom come. Let's pray.